Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. Located in the heart of Concord, New Hampshire, Centerpoint is all about living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The message today is a part of that journey, and we are glad to have you join us. Christ is the Lord. What an amazing Advent song to sing during this season. If you've been with us over this last month, we've been in our Advent series called The One. Our first week, we looked at the one who overcomes evil, and we looked all the way back at the first three chapters of Genesis, where God created a good, beautiful world. He invited Adam and Eve and humanity to rule and reign and extend his kingdom into all of the earth, and then they saw and they took what was right in their own eyes. Sin entered into the world and then God gave them a promise that he would one day, through the woman, send an offspring who would crush the head of that wily, slippery serpent. And in week two, we looked at the God who renews all things. Not only humanity, but one day with the intent of renewing all of creation in his beautiful story putting it back to what he intended it for. And then recently we looked at the God who rules justly in this image that that we heard and that we were given last week of the idea in scripture that by seeing and taking and joining in rebellion against God that we make what God intended to be straight crooked and that the one who would rule justly would take what was made crooked and bend it back and make it straight and set the world back to right. And today, as we continue this theme of the one, we're going to encounter the one who forgives. So as we set things up for our reading, I want to give you a little bit of a context. What you're going to hear Heather read comes through Nathan the prophet, who was David, King David's prophet, and these are the words of God through Nathan to David, when David, who was fairly new as king over all of Israel, asked God if he could construct a temple and a house for God. And this is his response. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When the days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Today, we light the final candle of Advent. This candle represents the one who forgives. Thank you. Thank you. What a powerful, powerful testimony. 
So David asks God if he could build him a house. And God's response is, I'm going to build you a house. And it's actually going to be through your lineage, David, and your line, that the one who would overcome evil, the one who will renew all things, the one who will rule justly, and today, as we'll see, the one who forgives, he comes through your line. What a promise. And this is the promise that David was given. And what's fascinating is that in David's day, there were many in Israel who were actually wondering about David if David was that one. Just think about that. It's important, and we can empathize with them. Because you see, David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. David defeated the snaky, slippery giant Goliath. David somehow managed to evade Saul and all of his persecutions against David. David eventually became king, and David was a mighty warrior. And most importantly, scripture says of David, God sees him and says, this is a man who is after my own heart. And so we can empathize with the people that they thought that perhaps David was the one. Perhaps he was the one who would crush the serpent like Goliath, the slippery, sneaky serpent. Perhaps he's the one who will rule justly. Perhaps he is the one who will renew all things. Unfortunately, not too long into his reign, I see some heads going, mm-hmm. we know where this is going. <laughs> and you can read about this for yourself in 2 Samuel's chapter 11 and 12, where David, at a time when his army is out fighting battle, and he ought to be with them, he decides to stay back home. And in, it tells us that one evening, he went up on his rooftop for a stroll. And it was bath time. And David saw, and David took. David exercised what was right in his own eyes, taking Bathsheba. Bathsheba became pregnant. David learned about this, and so he devises a plan, what is right in his own eyes. And he calls for her husband, Uriah, back from the battle lines, back to the capital city of Jerusalem. And he tries to convince Uriah to go home to his house and enjoy his spouse. And Uriah says, I I can't, I won't, not while the rest of the men are in battle. Oh, the irony how this exposes David. And so when his plan does not work, David has to pivot and do what seems right in his own eyes. And he sends Uriah back to the battle lines with a message for his commander. And he tells his commander, send all your men up to the wall, because this is ancient battle, right? So this is like they're sieging the city. So send them up to the wall. And then he tells his commander to pull all his men back except for Uriah so that Uriah will die. And Uriah dies. David gets word that Bathsheba's husband Uriah is dead. He then sees her and takes her to be one of his wives. And then he is confronted by the prophet Nathan, who gives him this powerful story, this parable. And he catches David in this moment of conviction. And Nathan says to David, you're the man You're the one who has done this very thing. You have taken what was not yours. God would have given you anything, but you decided to see and you decided to take. Now, what's David gonna do in this moment? 
because David's the second king in Israel's history. King Saul, when he was confronted in his own sin, he justified himself. He said, this is why I do what I'm doing. And so God said, I need to move on to another king. And so here's God's chosen king, David. And here's David caught in this moment of conviction. And his response is profoundly simple. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he goes on to write what we now have, Psalm 51. So turn with me to Psalm 51. And he writes these words. And it's as if we're taking I have sinned against the Lord and just opening it up and expanding to reveal what is David's heart when he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we read these words in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin, it's always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation." And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What a powerful heartfelt response to God from David when he was confronted and fell under deep conviction. Can you think of a time when you fell under deep conviction? Deep conviction. And what David experiences is that the God, the one who forgives us, invites us into several things when we find ourselves in a similar situation to David. The first thing that he invites us into is to be honest about our sin. 
It might not seem like it at first pass, but David is actually pretty specific here about the sin that he has committed. So look with me starting at the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. He says, according, so this is David to God, he says, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we might hear those words and just go, oh, okay, he's talking about the same thing. We just summarize, they're all synonyms, and we just lump them under sin, and sin is just simply doing bad things. The problem with that is that the Bible's perspective of sin and rebellion is actually way more complex and way more nuanced than just lumping it under doing bad things. What do we mean? Well, let's break these three words down because David is, again, he's being specific here. So the first word at the end of verse one, transgressions, transgressions. In the biblical vernacular, to transgress means to break trust, to break trust. So you have, you could have two nations who enter into a treaty and one breaks trust, one transgresses with the other. So we were in this agreement, we're watching out for each other, and then all of a sudden, oh, nope, we're not going to watch out for me, you're actually going to attack me now. Oh boy, okay, so you just broke trust. You can have this in relationships, you can have this within families, and in Israel's day, they could have this within tribes, where an individual or a collective of individuals could break trust with another. We see this uh, in the example in scripture where it talks about how uh, when your neighbor steals something from you, that's theft. But if it's your neighbor who you live with and you're supposed to have trust with them, they live right next to you, oh, they, they just transgressed. They sinned and they transgressed. They broke trust. So David breaks trust in multiple ways here. He breaks trust with Bathsheba, he breaks trust with Uriah, he breaks trust with Nathan the prophet, he breaks trust with the nation of Israel, he breaks trust with God. The next thing he says, wash away all my iniquity. Iniquity, simply put, is crooked behavior. So remember, what, what God intended from the beginning was he set everything right and invited humanity to join him in partnership to take Eden and extend it into the world in beauty and truth and goodness, all based upon God's definitions. And instead, sin entered into the world and we made crooked what he made straight. So to be guilty of iniquity is to be guilty of crooked behavior. You saw something, you took it, you exercised what was right in your own eyes and you made what God intended to be straight and you bent it. It's now crooked. This is why the Bible talks about being upright. It's actually an image. It means to be upright. It means to take what's crooked and make it straight. And here David is lacking in uprightness. And his behavior is quite crooked. It's quite deceptive. It's actually deadly and destructive. Because he had multiple points along this journey where he could have repented and made things right, but he continued to justify himself and attempt to cover up what he had done. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. And there's the word sin. This is probably the word that we're most familiar with. Sin means a moral failure. It means a moral failure to hit the mark. Well, what's the mark that's to be hit? Well, remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he sums it up. He sums all 613 commandments up by saying this. 
The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's the mark. That's the mark that's missed when we sin. So when we sin, it's a moral failure to hit the mark of loving God and loving others. And so in that process, we fail to do that by dishonoring others and we end up dishonoring God in that process. Now what's fascinating is if we continue in this section here, Verse three, he talks about his sin is always before him. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're saying, how can, how can this only be against God? That's really confusing because cl- clearly it's not. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He ultimately sinned against the whole nation because of his position as king. So what is he talking about that he only sinned against God? That doesn't make sense to me. What's fascinating is we see something very similar in the Joseph story all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 39, where Joseph has been exiled down into Egypt by his own brothers. And do you remember, he worked for Potiphar. So if if you're not familiar with that story, you can read that in your own time, uh, Genesis 39. And so he's working for Potiphar. So he's a slave in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, and she sees and wants to take him. So come and sleep with me, Joseph. And Joseph says, no, no. I cannot do this wicked thing and sin against God. Really? Yeah. Because you see, to sin against another human being who is made in God's image is to sin also against the one who made the image. It's to sin against the image bearer. And so this is what David is getting at here when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Do you see how this is so much more complex than sin is just doing bad things? Like, it's not less than that, but it's way more than that. This is why Jesus comes onto the scene and he says things like, listen, if you actually look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery. He says, look, if if you call someone a fool, oh, you're doing damage to their soul and your own in that process. This is why Jesus says, out of the mouth comes the overflow of what's inside the heart. This is way more deadly, way more destructive, and way more deceptive than we often think sin is. And it is a portrait of sin, and it is a portrait of humanity that we all experience. Whether we are sinned against by someone else or we are guilty of sin to someone else. And again, David's specificity around this continues. If we look at verse 14, he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Yeah, he's acknowledging what he did. He had convinced himself that, hey, I'm not the one actually killing Uriah. It's the Ammonite army that's actually killing Uriah. And God says, no, we know that that was you, David. And here, David, in his repentance, he says, yep, that was me. I'm responsible for his death. Deliver me from from my bloodshed. This specificity is important. This is important. So this isn't a vague generality. David is getting specific. This isn't condemnation that the evil one is bringing against David and false accusation that the evil one is bringing against David. This is the Holy Spirit with specificity, surgical specificity saying, this is what you've done wrong. And now I'm going to invite you into confessing, that means to acknowledge, confessing that you've done these things wrong because I want to restore you. 
See, this is God's posture, as we're going to see as this unfolds. His posture towards us, even in our moments like David, even in our absolute mess-ups like David, God's posture towards us is filled with love, both justice and mercy. And he sees us and he invites us to confess, to acknowledge, and to be honest about our sin. And he also, he invites us then to turn from our sins so that we might receive his forgiveness. Look back at the verses that that we were looking at early here in Psalm 51 verses one and two, where he says, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. These are images that David is using here. So when he says, blot out my transgressions, it's this idea of actually effacing something, getting rid of it, obliterating it, canceling it out. David says, just just blot the whole thing out. Blot it all out, God. I need you to do what I can't do. I need you to make right what I can't make right. Would you do this for me? Wash away. This one seems pretty self-explanatory. But actually, in the ancient Israelite economy, this phrase here of washing out refers specifically to the act of laundering, to to washing clothing, which is fascinating because what they would have done was they would have put it in a basin and then they would have poured water in that basin and then they actually would have treaded out with their feet to clean everything off. And so this is what he's saying, saying, wash wash all this away. Get, Get everything that I have done that is stained and that is dirty and wash it clean. Make me new. And then cleanse me from my sin. This one's so powerful. Cleanse me. If you look back at the book of Leviticus, which is an exciting read, it's tantalizing. If you need help falling asleep, read Leviticus. So in Leviticus, there's so much goodness in Leviticus, it's just really hard for us as modern Westerners to understand. But in Leviticus, part of the rituals that the priest would use in cleansing from defilement uses this word, this phrase here, cleanse me. So cleanse, it means to make pure, to make right. And what's fascinating is in Leviticus chapter 16, talking about the day of atonement, the one day of the year that the high priest could enter into the most holy place in the holy of holies to take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it all around the holy of holies to make atonement means to cover for the sins of the people annually of Israel. God says of that day, of that act that the priest does, he says, I'm doing this that I might cleanse Israel. I might cleanse my people. It's the same word used here. It's fascinating. And if that's not fascinating enough, he goes on in verse seven, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. So hyssop would have been used by the priests in a lot of these ritual purifications. But hyssop was also used at Passover, the very first Passover where God told the Israelites who were in bondage in Egypt to take a a lamb without blemish, to sacrifice it, to take its blood, and then with hyssop, like a paintbrush, put some blood on that, put it on the doorpost and on the lentil, on the top of the door, that the angel of death might pass over, that's where we get the name Passover, pass over your household and not harm you. So there's so much that's being activated in David's imagination as he pens these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
so powerful. So you hear David's heart cry. We hear his heart cry. We hear him confessing and acknowledging. We see him repenting and turning from his sin that he might, he's acknowledging, I've been out of alignment with you and now I want to turn. I'm changing my mind and I want to turn and I want to walk in your ways, God. And the word repentance also has this connotation, particularly in the Old Testament, of also being remorseful. So it's a change of mind. It's a turning away from doing things my own way to God's way. It is also carrying this connotation of remorseful. Remorseful. And can you hear it? Like, can you hear David's heart in this psalm? His heart is absolutely shattered in conviction with what he has done. And this is what God invites us into. Now, if that's not enough, what David does here, think about David's situation that he's in. He has messed up so royally that there's nothing that he can do in his own strength to make this right. And so what we see him doing is he's placing himself into the hands of a loving God. He's placing himself into the hands of a loving God. And he's saying, God, I can't make this right. I am leaning into, I am pressing into, I am throwing myself onto your mercies. Make right what I can't. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. This word for mercy in, in the original language, it's the idea of redemption from sin. God, redeem me means to buy me back. Pay for what I can't cover. The tab, I have racked it up and I cannot cover that tab. Would you cover it for me? This is what, this is what David's saying here. Have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, in, in, in the ancient language, this is the word chesed. Gotta get a little ch in there. You wanna try it with me? Chesed. Chesed, there you go. It's not, it's not a but like a, a little, so chesed. It means God's steadfast love, his enduring love, his covenant love that he made to one day bring through the seed of the woman that one who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was carried to Abraham through the nation of Israel and now David finds himself here and he's, he's appealing to God's covenant love. God, according to your love, do what I can't. And David has on his brain here the passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that's actually quoted more than any other Bible verse within the Bible. This is the one that's quoted the most. So a little bit of context. This is where Moses is on Mount Sinai for the second time, receiving the Ten Commandments. Because the first time, if you remember that story, that was a great story. The first time he got the Ten Commandments and came down from the mountain, well, he walked into a big party where the Israelites were breaking the first two commandments that they had just committed themselves to not break. Worship God alone and don't make any idols and they were doing both. Woo-hoo. And so at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of, of chapter 32, Moses goes back up and he pleads with God and he says, God, don't wipe the people out. You've got to uphold your covenant. You've got to uphold this. You've got to, this promise you made to Abraham, this promise you made back in the garden, you've got to uphold it. And God says, okay, I will. I will forgive. 
And so this is what God has to say about himself the second time that Moses goes up to receive the commandments. This is God speaking of himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and watch. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth. And then we add in there kind of the word generation so we know what we're talking about. The third and the fourth is just a Hebrew idiom of saying, till as long as it takes to bring them back. The third and the fourth. But notice his loyal love is to thousands. And so David has this on the brain uploaded in his mind as he's penning these words led by the spirit and he is throwing himself into the hands of a loving God whose love is both full of mercy and full of justice. And he is appealing to God's covenant love and he is saying, God, based upon who you are and what you've done and the character that I know that you have, I can do nothing in this situation except be repentant. Would you do for me what I can't do for me? Notice David's words in 16 and 17 of this psalm. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Pause here for a second. When David uses the word sacrifice, he has, especially on the brain, the idea of the animal sacrifice, part of the sacrificial system of Israel. So he says, that's actually not what you're interested in, God. Verse 17, the sacrifice, God, that you're looking for, here it is, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. So this word for spirit used here in the original language is actually talking about his will, his volition here, his will, his choice, his agency. He's saying, I, I am broken. I am so remorseful for what I have done my will is broken. I need you to make this right. And then he goes on, and, and this word heart actually has a really big range in the original language, like way bigger than kind of what it does in the modern day. When we, when we make a sharp distinction between the mind and the heart, or the head and the heart, uh, the idea in the original was actually kind of comp comprising both of those things. So this is the seat of thinking, this is the seat of emotions, and then particularly here, this is the seat of character. And so David is saying, my will is broken and shattered, my character and my reputation are broken and are shattered before you. My thoughts and my emotions are nothing but remorseful, and I see that I can't do anything. I am appealing to you and I need you to make this right. And notice what David says as he rounds out what we have today is verse 17. You, God, will not despise that broken and contrite heart. You, God, you will not despise a broken spirit. And this idea of despise, it's a really powerful image. What it means to despise someone, it means to raise your head loftily and look at the person with disdain. Just, let, just feel that for a moment. <laughs> to despise someone in this way means, <laughs> who, who you think you are? Are you kidding me? Do you know what you've done? 
That's what that means. And David says, that kind of, that kind of approach, God, that's not your approach. That's not the approach that you have. Let that hit us this morning. Right, because there's some of us who walk into this space and as we hear these words, it has nothing to do with me. This is the Holy Spirit at work. What it has to do is, is it's working on us at a core level as we sit here this morning. And so God's posture towards you and believe it or not, towards me, his posture is one not of disdain. It's of a parent who loves their child and says, come back, come back. It's not cheap grace. This is very costly. And David is acknowledging that while he can't do anything except bring his repentant heart and confession before God, that this is going to cost God greatly. This is costing God something because sin must be dealt with, iniquity must be dealt with, transgression must be dealt with. And he is petitioning himself to God, God, do what I cannot do. I know that you're verse four, you're right in your verdict, so if you wanna just go ahead and me out right now, you could. But I'm throwing myself on who you've revealed yourself to be, friends. His posture towards you and his posture towards me is one of open-handed love and invitation. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive me and forgive us. So this is his invitation. He loves us. And notice David's words in verses 12 and 13. He has this understanding that if God chooses to forgive, if God extends this to him, look at what he says. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Right? There's nothing I can do here, God. You've got, to, you've got to save me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then watch verse 13. Listen, listen, listen. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners might turn back to you. Did you catch that? This is for your good and for my good. For our good but not only as an end in and of ourselves, but it is to go and to do something with it. To be forgiven that we might forgive. To be forgiven that we might help other people walk in forgiveness. This is why I so love what Joshua shared with us this morning. Powerful testimony about experiencing God's forgiveness in his own life, vertically in his walk with God, that he might, through conversation led by the Holy Spirit and processing and time in a trusted space of loving community. Learn to then horizontally forgive those who have hurt him. And then did you hear what he said? It wasn't just enough for that to happen, but now he's actually turning around as a fellow sojourner along the way and coming alongside others to help them in the situation in which he had previously found himself. He restores and renews us that we might walk with him in this work of restoration, renewal, healing, and ultimately salvation that only he can bring. This is the God 
who we follow. And so David's last invitation here and our invitation that we receive this morning from God is that the God who forgives, he invites you and he invites me to come to the one who's descended from David. To come to the one who Heather read about in 2 Samuel chapter seven. The one who would through the lineage of David come and he would tread upon the head of the serpent. He would make a way for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. Opening up a way for people of all nations to come into his kingdom family. And when we turn to the New Testament, we meet a man who's more than a mere man. He's the God man. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. We know him as Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. The one who was promised to David, promised to Israel, promised to Abraham. We're rewinding the story, promised back in the garden in Genesis 3.15 to overcome evil. We meet the God man, Jesus. And when we encounter Jesus, it is like encountering nothing that we've ever encountered before. Everything is upside down and everything is inside out. Jesus comes and he is a little temple, a little mobile Eden hotspot and he is going around bringing in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It is like he takes a lasso and throws it around the future and just brings it crashing right into this present evil age. And so he goes around, and what does he do? He feeds multitudes. No man can do that. He heals those who are sick, those who can't speak, those who can't see, those who can't hear. He casts out oppressive spirits and demons who harass humanity, and he casts them out. And he forgives. Think back to the story where Jesus is teaching in a house. And this house is so crowded. It's like people are packed in like militant sardines trying to just get a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on with Jesus. What's going on? I don't know. I can't see. Everybody's kind of in my space. And to this house, a group of people bring a friend who was paralyzed and could not walk. And when they see, we ain't getting inside. They have the brilliant idea of going up on the roof. They take the time to pull back the tiles of that roof. And this is quite the, the demolition job here. While Jesus is down below teaching, and don't, look, like, let's not think like he didn't know, Jesus didn't know what was happening. Like, he would probably have some dust coming down on his head. They probably were kind of loud doing that. Like, I've demoed some stuff. I mean, not, not like Rick here, but like, I've demoed some stuff. Like, or Brad. Like, you guys know demo, demo work way better than me, but like, it's messy. It's loud. And so all this is happening, this commotion above them. And finally, they get a, a big enough spot open and they lower their friend down. And uh, Jesus is so moved. And he's moved by the faith of the friends. And he looks at the man with all these people crowded around him, including some of the religious leaders who were there not to be like, oh, what's going on? But like, 
Take copious notes, we're gonna catch him in a lie. And scripture tells us that he discerned in his spirit. So the Holy Spirit reveals to him, oh Jesus, this is a hard moment because you wanna heal this man, but it's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you because it's only gonna be another brick in the building of the religious leaders coming against you who were ultimately inflamed and empowered by, by the beings in the spiritual places. And so Jesus says to this man, I see the faith of your friends. You are forgiven. And the spirit reveals to Jesus that the Pharisees were grumbling to themselves and saying, who can forgive sin? This man, Jesus, is guilty of blasphemy. Meaning he's claiming to be God. Like they knew what he was claiming to do here. Only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus pauses. And he looks at the crowd packed in like sardines and he says, which is easier? To tell someone that their sins are forgiven or to tell them to get up and walk. And he turns to the man lying on the mat who he had just said, your sins are forgiven. And he says, pick up your mat and walk. So the man does what he's never done before. He stands up He picks up his mat and like the Red Sea parting, the crowd just and he walks on out praising God. And the Pharisees' response is, this man is guilty of blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. We gotta figure out a way to shh him out quick. This cost him. Healing people cost him. Bringing in the kingdom cost him. And he, friends, He was willing, joyfully willing to take that cost upon himself for you and for me. And he would die. He would lay down his life. The power of empire and the power of religion co-conspiring against him to kill him, but he said, that's okay. Here's why. I actually choose when I lay my life down and I'm gonna do it willingly. And so he stands in our place and he takes our spot on the cross and he makes a way for our sin, our iniquity, and our transgressions to be covered, to be dealt with. Say that no more. And he proves it by rising from the dead three days later, ascending to the right hand of the Father and ruling and reigning. And he told his followers to go preach the kingdom, to go preach what he has done for the forgiveness of sins is to go out to the nations because he wants to invite us into his kingdom family. He wants to invite us into the kingdom party. And he says one day when he returns and makes all things right, that there's gonna be a kingdom feast and a wedding to end all weddings and he's gonna be the one to serve up the entrees to you and to me, 
to those of us who have trusted in him. What a gift, what a God, and what a savior. This is his posture towards us. So if you're here today and you know Jesus, you've trusted in him by grace through faith alone, you've turned from your sin, when the father sees you, he sees the son. He sees Jesus. And we know this, right? Because we're on this side of eternity. Like we still struggle with sin, transgression, and iniquity. And so the invitation for us is to come to him in acknowledgement, asking the Holy Spirit to search us that he might lead us in the way everlasting, that we might make right what we need to make right. And for those of us here who maybe we're searching, maybe we don't even know who we're searching for or what we're looking for. This is the first time, or maybe we've heard about Jesus, but we don't really know much about him. The invitation is to come to him. The invitation is to turn from your ways, your transgressions, iniquities, and sin, to trust him, to place your faith in him. And today could be that day. And so after the service, our prayer team will be up here. You can come talk with one of them. They would love, 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 love to share with you the salvation that they've experienced to help walk you through that. And so here before us, we get to actually respond to Jesus in all that he's done for us in love today by celebrating communion. So my encouragement is if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, just let the plate pass before you. It's a judgment-free zone. We're not interested in inviting anybody to go against any of their personal convictions or beliefs. Okay, so just let that pass. No one's gonna be like, well, that was weird. Why did they do that? No, we're here. This is a place where we get to explore together and ask together and learn together. And we're so glad that you're here. So I wanna invite our team. They're gonna distribute the elements. And as, as they distribute, friends, um, we're gonna have some personal reflection time. So communion is a, is a great way for us to have humble reflection and joyous celebration. Humble reflection, asking God to search us. Is there something that we need vertically in our relationship with him to ask forgiveness for? To search us and show us, is there anybody who we need to extend forgiveness to? To search us and show us, is there anybody that we actually need to go find or call up or write to and say, I am so sorry. I need to make this right. Here is what I did. Here is what I said. I am so sorry. I've brought this before the Lord, but I need to bring it to you to make it right. For others of us, humble reflection might look like, Jesus, I'm just so thankful. I am just overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy and your love. So whatever it may be, I just wanna create this space for us to reflect in the quiet stillness of our minds and hearts to invite the spirit to search us. Once the elements are passed out, we will partake together. Father, we welcome you in this space. Would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your spirit's work right now? Would you do a deep work of healing at a soul level? Father, release those here this morning who your conviction is weighing heavy on them today. Help them 
at your feet to make that right with you and with the person or people that they need to make it right. God, for those here this morning that the enemy uses accusation and condemnation to bring forth things that were done to them. I ask that you would silence him and that your voice would shout from on high that you are for, with, and in those who are struggling to extend forgiveness. Do a deep work of healing. Jesus, we are grateful for you. In your name, amen. The last meal that Jesus shared with his friends, the night that he was betrayed, he took the unleavened bread, and unleavened is important. Leaven represents different things in scripture. One of those things is sin. Bake the bread with no leaven. Yes, part of it was the Israelites had to leave Egypt in haste. The other part of it was represents sin. So Jesus took that bread and he broke it in half. This is my, we could insert sinless body, broken for you. Take and eat. Then he took the cup. The Passover meal had four cups. The second cup is the cup of judgment. And the third cup that Jesus took was the cup, you'll never guess, of salvation. He took that cup, having had drank the second, knowing that he was going to have to drink the cup of judgment so that we might drink the cup of salvation. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. Take and drink. Father, we are grateful. We stand in awe of your holiness and your goodness and your love. We thank you that you are just and we praise you that you are merciful. Speak to us, God, not only now, but as we leave this place. Do that deep work in us. Spirit, as we leave, comfort us, fill us with your peace, and empower us to bear witness to the one named Jesus, the one who forgives sin. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us and participating with us. May you be blessed as you enter into this final week of Advent. God bless. Take a little bit to stop and reflect on what God might be saying to you and how you'll respond to him today. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we are here to serve you. Find us at centerpointnh.org and join us on the journey of living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus.